the telltale signs of spiritual abuse, and once you've been subjected to it, how do you heal? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And on this podcast, we're rolling out the first of 11 talks from this year's Restore Conference. This was an amazing gathering of survivors of church hurt and abuse, as well as pastors and Christian leaders wanting to better minister to these survivors. As one speaker commented, Restore is more like a restorative community than a conference, and there's really nothing that quite compares to being there in person. That said, we had some incredibly powerful and eye-opening talks, and one of those talks you're going to hear today. The talk is on recognizing and healing from spiritual abuse, and the person speaking is Ken Garrett, someone who knows about spiritual abuse firsthand. Ken and his family were members of an abusive church in Oregon, which turned out to be a cult. After escaping the cult in the mid-1990s, Ken went on to complete graduate research on spiritual abuse, and he created the Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education, or SAFE. This is a bi-monthly meetup with Christian and non-Christian survivors of spiritual abuse to connect and support each other. Ken also is the pastor of Grace Church in Portland, and he's the author of In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. Ken also is a warm and gentle soul who I'm proud to call a friend, and I'm so excited to share his talk with you. But first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University, and Mark Orta Barrington. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, this is the first of 11 talks from the Restore Conference, which concluded on October 14th. This talk on recognizing and healing from spiritual abuse is by Ken Garrett, a pastor and author of In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. Here's Ken Garrett. Sometimes in the process of recovery from spiritual abuse, it's easy to think in terms of the long haul. Will I ever be okay? Will my marriage be okay? Will my kids get over it? And will I ever go back to church? Or will I ever be able to listen to another loud pastor guy standing behind a pulpit? I mean, all kinds of long-term questions, but um, really, the recovery is a step-by-step endeavor. And that step-by-step, for me, sometimes meant not even getting out of my car when I would drive into the parking lot of a church after I left, because guess what? God's will for my life changed when I drove into that parking lot. I couldn't handle it, so I'd drive on down the road and, or drop my kids off and, at the church and then go get breakfast or something. That's what happened to me, and I want to talk a little bit about it. And Julie kind of covered what I'm up to now as I'm a pastor in Portland, Oregon. 
Uh, I've been a pastor of a church there for 20 years in the middle of downtown Portland. And uh, before that, ironically, I served as a paramedic in that district of downtown Portland. In fact, one of the first times I ever preached there, I took care of a gentleman in a, with having a hypoglycemic reaction and then preached. And I thought that was so cool. It's the kind of things you would write about if you were doing that. But that, that's what happened. And um, so that's what I do now. I'm a pastor there. And um, Julie referred to my experience as having been in a Christian cult, which is spot on. And I want to assure you today that um, I know you're in all phases of figuring out what happened to you. Uh, I did not refer to my experience or the, the church I was in as a cult for, I don't know, boy, maybe 10 years or so, uh, seven years before I could really think of it that way and before it occurred to me that I had so much in common, really, with my friends that had escaped Scientology or yoga cults or Hindu cults or white supremacist cults or all of the polygamists, uh, um, all of the, those cults. And, and um, I had so much in common with them. And it was when I started learning about them, I realized I'm certainly, uh, certainly just like them. I've survived a cult. And I was able to start calling it that. I realize as I'm speaking to you today that not everybody uh, is comfortable. You're not there. Maybe you'll never get there. Spiritual abuse is kind of on a spectrum. And uh, I'm going to share with you some, some red flags of spiritual abuse in churches that I, that I see and that I believe. Not all of those red flags will relate to your situation, but I'm going to be so general about it, really, that um, I think a few bells will, will, will go off um, for you. But it's a process, and um, wherever you put yourself in that process, I'm delighted that you're here today, that part of it is for you to take a step uh, to cross through the door. Most of you probably know what it's like to walk through the doors of a church after you've had a particularly terrible experience in, in churches, and um, that really represents something if you're, if you're able to do that. And it represents something today, that you did that this morning. You, you got up knowing, having an idea of the things you were going to hear, having an idea of the things we were going to talk about, but you came anyway, and, and I thank you for that. Um, yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, grew up a pretty normal, I'd like to think a normal guy. Uh, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, and uh, uh, I live in the neighborhood now that I grew up in. And um, my parents were, were Christians, and... and uh, went to church and raised us in the, in the church. I joined the military uh, when I was 20, and uh, during that time also I, I got married. Sharon and I were married and lived in North Carolina for a while. And uh, something that was true about us, and I don't think it's just because she's a Baptist preacher's daughter. I don't, I don't think that's the only reason, but we were fiercely devout for our age. You know, we had a little bit of Keith Green gonna, you know, yeah, we're gonna save the world. I mean, good grief, no stopping us. And we were uh, very open to finding uh, uh, ministries that were a little avant-garde, a little, a little different, a little edgier. You know, we didn't want our mom and dad's churches. Neither one of us did. And so um, I was then at work one day, a fellow paramedic me invited me to, to her church 
And she said, well, Ken, uh, what are you looking for in a church? And I said, discipleship and Bible study. Man, that's candy to a recruiter from a cult, right? I mean, she's like, bing, guess what we do? And, 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 and as if that wasn't enough, I actually said, you know, I'd also wouldn't mind joining a church that meets in a home or something you know, like that too, something a little different. She said, we meet in a living room. And thus began in 1984 uh, my journey into a church that, that began to unravel and fall apart. I'm still thinking through the reasons why it unraveled. I know we talk about abusive churches a lot as if, uh, if, if this was a church and it was abusive, as if all of you had some malignant designs on each other because you were all bad, you were in an abusive church, you were all abusers or something. But that's not true at all. Um, I'm just still circling around this issue after many years of studying it. I find a narcissistic personality behind every abusive church I ever find. There, there's somebody calling the shots, and that person has some very distinct uh, attributes about him. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about those attributes, but I'll just say our guy had those attributes. And uh, he really, uh, we, we studied the Bible like crazy. I mean, we were studying Greek and Hebrew and church history and giving, oh my goodness, like Monday, Monday evening, Wednesday morning, Saturday morning evangelism, Sunday morning worship, and then Sunday afternoon fellowship. And that didn't even count meeting during the week with my discipler, mentor, uh, the person who was uh, supposedly going to help me grow spiritually. Um, so it really kind of ended up eating up our lives, which really, when we first went there, we wanted that. Uh, we were looking for a big commitment. We did, in that sense, want to save the world. We wouldn't have admitted it, but sure, why not? Over the years, the whole thing really went off the cliff. And this gentleman who was leading our church, uh, um, really through all kinds of issues in his life that were simply undealt with, that he really should have gotten, you know, real therapy for and help. He didn't. And the church was the low-hangingest fruit of finding a social group that could be controlled and could become what is called a narcissistic supply for him. And uh, all of those things working together ended with us uh, moving in together and living communally with, with several large homes in a beautiful neighborhood of Portland. And uh, did you know you can get like 24 people into one large home? Uh, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. It was really communal is what it was. Although for some reason, while we were living that way, we, and we were with our kids too. We ended up having three kids in this group. For some reason, it was important that we qualified our communal living, that it was semi-communal. <laughs> I don't know what semi meant because... I wasn't in charge of the thermostat or what cable channels we got or anything like that. Um, and I was told when I would eat and w what our family was going to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, glad I could, I'm glad it wasn't communal then, I guess, because semi-communal was really bad enough. <laughs> well, everything really fall apart, fell apart. And we really followed him off the, uh, off the cliff. And... Um, it's important to note, people in my church hate it when I note this, but it's important to note that I was a card-carrying 
fully supportive, on-the-bus disciple in this group. I progressed to being a kind of a junior leader, a, a deacon in the group. I was teaching and I uh, was speaking a little bit. And, and um, I, I supported the whole thing. And that's the way it was for all of us too. That's something that survivors of spiritual abuse, we have some, sometimes we have a tough time you know, really owning the fact that we really supported it. I mean, we were on target for it. We, we did alienate friends. We did ruin every Thanksgiving we went to with mom and dad. <laughs> At least I did. Uh, we, we have trouble sometimes seeing that because we do carry vestiges of shame about us, don't we? Shame as a husband, as a father. I mean, just so um, that's difficult to look at. And I, I realize coming in here today, that, that you probably carry the vestiges of those really hurtful and harmful feelings and things and thoughts about yourself that I'm still picking through 26, I think 20, I don't know, 26 years later or so. So I get it about that. So in 1996, uh, I had repented of a lot of personal sins in my life. Uh, biggie, biggie, biggie things. Uh, I mean, the police watched us and the FBI for a while. So we were kind of serious uh, criminals, I think. And um, I repented of a lot of sins. And Sharon and I, um, our marriage, of course, had fallen apart in the, in the group, and, which is kind of what these groups do. And we uh, got together again, although we've known each other since we were kids. But we just started piecing together and this sounds really strange, but the first encouraging thing about my marriage that we pieced together is establishing the fact that if I left the church, Sharon would go with me. Isn't that, isn't that sad? It's not because she was so bad or, or I was so good. It's because in these kinds of groups, that's how it can be for a marriage. So, yeah, and that was like, wow, she's going with me. I can, I can do anything. And here's something interesting. I haven't even touched my notes yet, and I'm glad I didn't write a lot of notes. Here's something interesting. When I first told God I wanted to leave this church, I felt guilty about it, and I felt that I was scared somebody would find out and overhear my prayer or something, even though I was on a mountain uh, in Portland. But um, when I first told him I wanted to leave this church, the terms that I expressed that to him were this. I'll give up ministry. I'll give up my dreams of being a pastor. And I will put all of these ridiculous books away that I've been pouring over for years. I'll walk away from all of those aspirations I had. And I will live on top of a garage somewhere. Man, I'll live in a packing box, a shipping box. I'll, I'll live anywhere if you'll just let me keep my wife and my children. And uh, if you'll do that, God, <clears throat> I won't bother you anymore with these aspirations of Ken being a pastor or anything like that. That says a lot about me and how I viewed God. Uh, it really says a lot about what I felt was a transaction happening, that I was failing in the contract. I was going to break my contract with God. And I've found that that's very, it's actually consistent with 
with Christians and other cults too. Scientologists, when they leave it, um, they break what for some of them is a 16 million year contract that they've signed over to, uh, to follow it. I know that sounds totally wacky, but the fir- in the first time you hear it, you kind of go, what? But yeah, and they decide to, to break that contract. I lived as if I had a, a contract with God. And as I left the church with Sharon and our, our children and the few things that we still had to us, and as we walked out the door on August 28th at about 3 p.m., 1996, and got in our little car and drive, drove away with the associate pastor yelling and yelling at me and the elders all angry and all of that. We went to a hotel because I was too embarrassed to tell my parents, well, you were right. <laughs> you know, I had alienated them so much. I just, I, I couldn't take that too. So we went to a hotel and the big question, of course, that I carried and that took a long time to get around was simply the question, what just happened. (laughs) I was 24 years old, fresh out of the military, great job as a paramedic, buying a house, settling into life, having babies, and, and here I am, I'm 36, and I'm checking into a little hotel and afraid to call my parents, and I'm really freaked out that they'll find out where I'm at, and, and, wow, um, what happened? Well, it's really easy to say now what happened. Spiritual abuse happened. My religion, uh, spiritual abuse I've written down is the infliction of an emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounding that is uh, inflicted on a person within the context of that person's religion. Spiritual abuse is not uh, simply uh, uh, um, located or, or limited to Christian churches. Spiritual abuse is the use of a person's ideological, metaphysical, or spiritual beliefs, their religion. Uh, it's, it's jumping into that world and, uh, and then beginning to corrupt the person's thinking, and the person's reasoning. And in many ways, they develop what's called a false self. And that's spiritual abuse when that happens. Now, along with spiritual abuse are uh, equally terrible abuses and even more terrible um, uh, that we're not really here to deal with at at this event, but uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, violence, marital abuse, child abuse, economic abuse, professional abuse. I mean, there are so many ways uh, that this abuse happens. And spiritual abuse simply says that these abuses, as terrible as they were, happened in the context of my religion. The thing that was supposed to help me avoid that abuse. So that's, that's what happened uh, to me. Okay, so let me give you some red flags of spiritual abuse. And I don't expect, as I said, that these will uh, you know, make sense to everybody, but I'm going to run through them. And I got rid of all of my little explanatory notes of my main notes because I thought, you know, Ken, you're saying some details here, but um, as I understand our group here and, and what we're doing here today, you guys have the details. You, you have it down. I'm just stating this out as a general idea about spiritual abuse and how it looks and, and how it uh, can look. But as I see, looking at the schedule of events and speakers, 
we're going to get detailed, and you're going to get more details, but I'm going to speak kind of generally. I've got 10 things that I think are, that I've found to be red flags of spiritual abuse. Um, the fir- well, the first thing I should clear up is, who joins an abusive church? Who joins an abusive church? Now, I'm not just being facetious about it, but I'll tell you the answer. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody joins a church that's going to wreck their marriage, alienate them from their children, take all their money, uh, take them out of professional advancement and, and, and educational advancement that they would like to do like everybody else wants to do. Nobody willingly joins that kind of a group. Of course not. We join groups that promise to meet our deepest needs, that promise to give us the community, the quality relationships we want, When we're young families and young parents, they promise to give us other young families and young parents that share our values so we can grow up together in it. Um, This group promises to give us the things we so desperately want. So that's the group we join. And it's the same thing in the cult world, uh, you, you know, wherever you're at with it. People don't join a cult. Nobody goes out and says, you know what? Um, I like the simplicity of an all-orange wardrobe. (laughs) And I especially love the simplicity of a vegetarian diet. And the uh, standing on the corner yelling at people and trying to get their money, that's just icing on the cake, baby. (laughs) That's for me. Of course nobody does that. They join a group that communicates to them that those deepest needs and desires of their life are going to be met there. And I suspect that's how you guys either joined or if you grew up in one of these abusive churches, what you discovered. Okay, so the red flags. The first one is deceit. Deceit. Every uh, cultic group or abusive group or abusive church is founded when it begins abusing its members. And again, I got to tell you, even though I'm saying members, plural, and church, plural, in my head, I got a picture of a guy. And that's a bad guy. He's finishing out a 20-year sentence at Oregon State Penitentiary as we sit here today for his badness of felony, child sexual assault. Finally got caught after like three trials. So I'm thinking of a guy. I don't know what you might be thinking of, but it's based in deceit. It's based in deceit. The the environment of a hurtful church um, is purposely unclear. The motives are veiled. Um, The atmosphere is controlled. In terms, when I say atmosphere, what I mean is the milieu. It's the control of the milieu. What you look at, what you see. Uh, who you're with, what kind of music you hear, where the pastor is, how the pastor stands, what does his pulpit look like, what kind of behaviors do you observe are allowed, and what kinds of ones are not. This is the whole cultural milieu, the context, and it's based in deceit because it's presenting to you a picture of the church that is simply not true. And this is important to note because this is the aspect of an abusive church that destroys your trust, okay? It's, it's the very beginning realizing, and I hate to put it this way, but realizing you were tricked. And that is a violation of your trust, which, wow, that hits you hard. Lose trust in God, lose trust in religion, lose trust in your Bible, lose trust in your 
friends, your spouse, your, your, your religion, and uh, worst of all, you lose trust in God and you're not sure if you got tricked into the whole ball of wax. So the first thing I find is deceit with these, uh, these groups. The second thing, and this is not a progressive order, it's just kind of the 10 as, I, as they occurred to me. The second thing is isolation. Abusive churches and toxic groups depend on isolating their members from the others. Moms and dads, brothers and sisters, best buddies from high school, kids you grew up with, other Christians. I mean, the support that could be a support network for you, the abusive church moves toward isolating you away from that and diminishing the importance and the significance of those relationships to where maybe you'll spend Thanksgiving with your church family, those folks that really love you, and you'll tell your mom or your dad, I'm not going to be able to make it home. Maybe you won't go to the normal Christmas gathering that you've been to all of these years because you know what? Pastor's teaching a complete study through the book of Mark over Christmas break. That's not something I want to miss. <laughs> that isolation serves a much deeper purpose than simply showing the power of the leadership. The reward and punishments of, as a system that take place in, abuse, in an abusive church can only take place if you have no um, outside influences. The abusive leader does not want you to be able to go have a cup of coffee with your high school buddy and say, well, you'd never believe it. Um, actually, I'm tithing 30%, um, which is pretty tough for a new guy and a new paramedic and with kids and everything. But I, I, I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, after my friend got done slapping me, he would, he would say something like, Ken, wake up, wake up. This is not right. It's, how, how can this be right? They're rich and you're, they're making you poor. Um, that kind of discussion and reaction is poison to the leaders and the leader of an abusive church. So the isolation has to happen. The reason it's important is because you do not become completely um, pliable until you are effectively isolated. And, 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 okay, and the way it happens is not through deriding and discouraging you from your present or, or your relationships or things important to you. It's also through loving you within the group into such a way that you can say, well, maybe my needs will be met here. And it becomes emotionally very important to you that those needs are met and that you're okay with everybody in that group. And you begin making decisions based on the underlying commitment you have to stay good with the group. Isolation is important to these, to these groups. Another one, elitism. Elitism. Uh, um, just the, the, the idea of uh, compared to other Christians, compared to other churches, compared to other groups, this is a place where it's done right. You might hear their, the translation of their Bibles criticized. You might hear um, their pastors criticized. Um, you know, well, what kind of church do you think that must be? They got a woman pastor, right? Don't throw anything at me. I was just using that as, a, <laughs> as an example. Uh, so this um, elitism begins to happen within these groups. You're actually told 
while you're experiencing the worst life you can imagine, you're actually told that you're uh, a green beret for Jesus. I mean, you're, you're actually in the best group. And you are better, and you're going to be better, and you probably are going to save the world. Elitism. Um, fourth, I see that the independence, the freedom of thought, begins to be controlled um, by the group. Nobody likes the word brainwashing, and it's not a good word at all to, to use. In the academic world, it's called thought reform. That is through a system of manipulations and emotional controls, the very way that you, as a member, think is changed. That happens partially through being told you're more special than everyone else, and you're elite. You're in the best. Your pastor's the best pastor. He's the most like King David. Uh, isn't that something? We really did say that, yeah. Which, if I would have really thought about it, I would have gone, oh man, head for the hills. <laughs> That is not exactly the best person to be like, uh, bless him, but yeah. Okay, so the elitism hits and the independence, your ability to think independently gets goofed up. That's why it's hard when you leave a group to think straight. It's hard to think straight. It's hard to pick up a book. I went to the store and stared at the, at the uh, section of Levi's because I needed a new pair of jeans, and it was just months after leaving. I stared at those things. I, oh, man, there's like a million different kinds anyway, right? And just trying to make a decision about it, and I walked out after an hour. I couldn't decide. Um, it didn't quite take an hour, but I also walked out of the supermarket. I could not decide between white and brown eggs. And, and of course, that wasn't a thing from my cult. It's just my decision-making and my trust in myself had gotten so out of, out of shape that at moments I couldn't even control, I would be paralyzed and could not think straight. That's generally not a good quality in a paramedic. But uh, there it was, and I managed to survive. So, uh, yeah, the independence of thought is hit, and I call that really a freedom of conscience. The idea of being able to believe what I believe and know what I believe and own what I believe uh, in these churches, of course, that gets violated. Um, fifth, I see that the member's private life is violated. Okay, violated. It can take place through simply giving reports to those over you, how are you doing this week? How's your time with God going? How are those memory verses going for you? Can I review you? Are you planning on making it to this? How is this going? Um, you, your private life begins to be dismantled. How's your marriage, Ken? How's your marriage? Well, don't just say fine. I mean, how are you doing? When was the last fight you had? And, and uh, um, that's stuff that you, you bring up for help and assistance with somebody you trust. It's not something that the bosses ask you. That's your marriage. So there's a violation. And then, of course, confession. Uh, the very uh, demand that you, as a member, uh, confess your sin a lot, often. And that sin you know, ends up making its way up the chain. And in some churches, they actually write them down. Um, I think the Bible says something about that somewhere keeping a list, you know, but, in, but uh, the, the confession is a very important part of it because it involves a public shaming and, a, and, a, and an admission of your unworthiness uh, and, and of, of your failure. When I went to court, which, you know, 19 years or so after leaving my cult, 
I was on the witness stand, and it was very important to the defense attorney to discredit me as a witness, probably because I'm a pastor, uh, because my daughters had been some of the children that this man had abused. Uh, but um, also, I had studied cultic dynamics and whatnot. And so he thought to himself, well, I don't really want Ken up there. And um, it was amazing. They remembered sins that I had confessed in 1984. Uh, yeah, and now I'm a, a, a 54-year-old, 54-year-old man who's, you know, grace of God moved on from a lot of things in my life, and I'm, now I'm faced with 24-year-old Ken with his totally goofed up compromises, and, and since they remembered it, they told their lawyer, and he nailed me on it in the courtroom. Everything from, well, I just won't get into it here, but just everything. They really had it, they really had it down. And uh, it didn't work, because when you've left a group like this and faced things, uh, who cares? Who knows? Whatever. They thought they were going to make my church maybe fire me or something like, oh, if they knew what we know about him. Uh, That wasn't exactly the case at all. Another red flag is family. How the church uh, treats family relationships. Uh, the, The two that I'll just mention is, first of all, the marital relationship. I've said a couple things about that already but also the relationship of children um, in in the family unit. Uh, False teachers and abusive leaders get right to work infusing marriages, especially young marriages, with uh, issues of dominance, uh, with uh, uh, fake communication, with the concept of husbands discipling their wives or maybe wives discipling their husbands. I mean, I've been to weddings where the pastors, in giving his wedding speech, Uh, reminded the young groom that he was now the authority in his bride's life and he would need the answers. She needed to come to him for wisdom, no longer her father. Isn't that weird? And I'm thinking to myself, good grief. This is a kid. And he's being told that, I mean, I know, I know he's not even taking responsibility for his own life because he's 20 years old or whatever, and he also now is responsible for the life of the most precious human being in his life, his wife, and he's set up for failure. Abusive churches hurt marriages in in many, many different ways, and they also hurt the relationships between children and their parents. The healthy connecting and bonding that should be happening between a child and his mom, especially his mom, but a child and his mom and her dad in the earliest years of life often are disrupted in the abuse of church. And it hurts because you can't get those years back. The reason this happens is because narcissistic leaders hate dyadic relationships. Strange word. What I mean there is this. They are jealous of any other two people in their world having a relationship that is outside of their control, criticism, ability to step right into and mess with any time they want. They resent these relationships, and they resent the relationships often between parents and their children. That's how it was in my church. You know, he was just jealous. He was just jealous. There's a distinct fear of displeasing leaders in abusive churches. Uh, members end up living their lives with the consideration before they do anything of, you know, anything, go out, go out to a movie or whatever. They think, how would pastor so-and-so feel about this? And would I be in trouble or not? Is this okay or not? And they make decisions based on that. A, a terrible fear of leadership because of what they can do to you. 
once you've been isolated by them. Um, then the issue of grace. This is where I could talk for like 10 hours and I probably wouldn't even touch the bottom of it. The violation of grace that happens in abusive groups and churches is absolutely criminal. If grace is even spoken of, it is relegated to the theology pages of a book to explain the disposition of God when he graciously and nicely presented Christ in such a way that you and I can believe and escape judgment and sin and be, you know, be saved. And that's it. But the issue of graciousness in the church, man, that is not just twisted or perverted. It's absent. Grace is absent. That's the number one kind of theology that I find people, when they leave these churches and and, uh, begin to put their lives together and, and heal, the number one thing that blows them away if they're, if they're in that space, is grace. It's the missing theological point of all of these uh, abusive groups. And finally, um, leaving the group is traumatic. It's hard to leave. It's not just hard to leave, it's traumatic on you to leave. Be- long before you leave the group, the message is made clear to you what will happen to you if you leave the group what will be said about you by your best friends if you leave the group, how you will be thought of if you leave the group, how you will fail in life if you leave the group. You know, long before you walk out the door, you see it lived out before your very eyes and how your friends are treated when they leave, and you think to yourself, I don't want that to happen to me. So the trauma begins before you even leave it. But once you leave it, oh my goodness, Oh my goodness, the anxiety attacks, the fear of crowds, the fear of people, the inability to keep commitments you make to meet somebody or to do something, the showing up late for an event or a church or something so that you don't have to talk, and then the leaving early so that you don't have to talk. All of those behaviors, um, those, those all come about because of the trauma that you experienced of your soul being mashed up in a meat grinder by a church. Okay, I've got just a few minutes to say just a few things. How do we begin to heal from this? What does healing look like? How do we begin the healing process? I've got just a few things to say, and the first thing is that the healing process absolutely involves a renewal of trust. It might take a year, it might take 10 years, I suppose I'm out 26 years out and I'm still kind of working through it. But trust has been violated. Something that needs to be earned was violated. And you don't trust churches. You don't trust people. You struggle with trusting God. You struggle with opening the Bible. It triggers so much. I mean, so much of what happened to you was centered around somebody tapping a Bible while they were doing it to you. And worst of all, you don't trust yourself. I couldn't trust myself to buy a pair of pants. And I'm raising kids. And I'm giving life support to to patients. Couldn't trust myself to just make a decision about buying a stupid dozen eggs in Safeway and going home. Your trust in yourself. And if your trust is violated on even those small things, imagine the big things. How do I know how to lead my family? How would I ever know a church that's good or not? 
How am I ever going to trust another pastor? I trusted that one. I trusted that church. I trusted that doctrine. I trusted those things and I failed. I should be here and I'm not. I should have this much retirement. I don't. I should have this kind of house. I don't. I should have this education. I don't. My wife and I should be experiencing this life. We're not. So trust is, is violated. And so the first thing in recovery is to um, begin to consider the need for trust and, uh, and, and make some small choices to restore trust. I'm a very literal guy. When I say small choices, I mean like get out of bed. So far, so good. <laughs> I made it. And, and that's what I mean, is to begin to make good choices and to establish trust. And of course, that involves people. And that's, that's really the second thing of, of building back trust, is kind-hearted people. You need a relationship with people who get it. It's best if those people are people that were in your group with you. They get it, and you can stay up all night telling stories. And that's good. But um, you need people in some manner. And it can be a handshake and a hello, and that's it for now. No problem. You've done something. But we need human beings to restore trust in human beings. If you're trying to help people recover from these things, this is the most important aspect that you are a person of integrity and kindness and you stick your neck out for the person that you're wanting to help and you understand that they don't trust you and they might not for a long, long time. Okay, uh, and then finally, you need information. You need solid information. I, was, I went back to seminary and I was, I was working on a doctorate. It was on some boring, boring subject that nobody has a right to really take anybody's time, but I switched halfway into studying cults and abusive churches. And all I could find was basically, other than a couple of good books, all I could find was devotional materials or telling me why I needed to be nicer to King Saul when he throws a spear at me. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, so you need, <laughs> you need education. Uh, you need to learn the dynamics of thought reform, of cults, of how psychologically things happen that hurt you. And I had to go into the kind of the secular academic realm to start researching and, and putting that together. And you need that information. And finally, I got like a couple seconds. Finally, if you achieve a bit of an education with people, you'll develop the vocabulary to explain what I started out saying, what happened to me? you will develop a common language so that you can show up here and get to telling your stories and sharing your heart a lot quicker and you can be understood and empathized with a lot better because you learn a common vocabulary and over time you develop the words and you understand them and you're able to share and to listen to your fellow survivors as you heal. Please bow your heads if you would let me and, and uh, grant me the respect of letting me pray for you. Gracious King, um, dear King, Shepherd, every human being in this room is broken and uh, every human being everywhere is broken. We're here admitting it. So we ask you to carry us. Don't just help us along. Don't just help things get a little better. Absolutely 100% save and deliver us 
even now. We want to have a good weekend, but God, even now, wherever we're at with this horrible issue, meet us, deliver us, give us trust, give us good people, and teach us. Father, teach us, for we are here to learn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, that's Ken Garrett speaking at Restore 2023, which just concluded on October 14th. Next week, I'll be publishing my podcast with theologian Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger, on their new book, Pivot, The Priorities, Practices, and Powers That Can Transform Your Church Into a Tove Culture. That's an awesome book, and it's sure to be an awesome podcast, so be looking for that next week. Then on November 8th, I'll be releasing a talk from Restore by Carson Whitenauer on disillusionment and hope. This is an extremely vulnerable and moving talk where Carson recounts his profound disillusionment when he discovered that someone he thought was a hero of the faith turned out to be a fraud. That hero was Ravi Zacharias. And when Carson discovered the truth about Ravi, he was a director at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. This is such a painfully honest yet hopeful talk and one you won't want to miss. I also want to mention that the videos of these talks are all available at my YouTube channel. A lot of conferences charge for their videos, but we've decided to make ours available for free because we don't want anyone to miss out on this valuable content because of lack of finances but these videos do cost us to shoot and edit. So if you appreciate this content and you're able to pitch in, would you please donate to The Roy's Report so we can continue this important service. To do so, just go to julieroys.com donate. Again, that's julieroys.com donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged.